Holy Spirit, open our minds and hearts to understand your word. And may you use it to transform us into the likeness of Christ. Amen. When I was a little girl, my sisters and I would argue about who was going to sit in the middle seat of the back seat of our 1978 VW Rabbit. I think the idea was that the one in the middle could interact with both sisters. But one day my mother said, I don't understand why you girls argue about that. When I was little, my brothers and I used to argue about who got to sit next to the windows. And I thought, that is brilliant. And starting that day, my sisters and I started bickering about who got to sit next to the windows. I think we have all bickered, right? Um, We have bickered with siblings or friends when we were younger. We've bickered with spouses or colleagues at work. We've bickered silently, you know, that kind of bickering. We've bickered with words. We've bickered inside the church. We've bickered outside the church. And we have probably bickered at least once on our way to church, if you go with other people. And what we heard today in the scripture reading was Paul's response to some bickering. 1 Corinthians is a letter Paul wrote in response to a letter he'd received from the church in Corinth. Now, Corinth was a major city in Greece. It was located near the narrow strip of land that connected the Peloponnese to the mainland. It was a wealthy, cosmopolitan trade center. It was a tourist destination. People would travel there for athletic games similar to the Olympics. It had a huge gap between the rich and the poor. Life in Corinth was life that was all about status. It wasn't just about who got to sit next to the window. It was about who was in the driver's seat, the make and model of the car, and the kind of designer sunglasses the driver wore. This desire for status was ingrained into the culture of Corinth. And the aspiration for status kind of slipped under the doors of the home where the church met and affected everyone's relationship with everyone else. Paul knows the culture of Corinth well because he had had lived there for a year and a half planting a church. But maybe he's heard from his friend Apollos And he has definitely received a letter. And he recognizes the necessity for him to face the conflict in the church and the problems there head on. And so he does in 1 Corinthians. The church is bickering about several things. One of those is spiritual gifts, as we heard today. To the church in Corinth, some gifts have kind of a higher status than others. Some gifts are seen more as lower class And using the body as a comparison, which was a a metaphor folks there understood because other philosophers had used it, Paul reminds them of the need for harmony within diversity. Paul writes a little parody, kind of Saturday Night Live style. Did you hear it? Everyone's dressed in costumes of body parts, and the big toe is saying to the front tooth, I don't need you. The appendix is saying to the eyelid, get lost, buster. 
The elbow is saying to the jawbone, you're evicted. The body is actually dismembering itself, taking itself apart. They're firing each other, quitting, and the body is left lame, blind, deaf, mute, and powerless. And then Paul reminds them that in terms of status, the individual Christian is not important. But in terms of value to everyone, every individual is important. The gifts, Paul explains, are divided out among the whole church. Nobody has all the gifts we need. And so we need each other to be the church, to be the body of Christ together. It's kind of easy to judge the Corinthians here, I think. Because in our culture, many of us have a deep understanding of personal differences and strengths. Maybe you've done Myers-Briggs or you've taken StrengthsFinder or StrengthsFinder 2.0. Maybe you've done the DISC profile at work and you understand how groups of people work with strengths and weaknesses. We've moved on from that, right? But the Corinthians, (laughs) they're all judgy and bickering, just like three siblings in the back of a 1978 VW Rabbit on a 12-hour-long car trip, and Paul is the dad, turning around and batting the kids' knees with his arms. Okay, kids, settle down. But frankly, we bicker too. And this year has been a year of bickering. According to the American Psychological Association, we, our culture in America, has a new disorder called election stress disorder. 52% of American adults reported that the 2016 election is a very or somewhat significant source of stress in their life. One of the researchers said, election stress becomes exaggerated by arguments, stories, images, and video on social media that can heighten concern and frustration, particularly with thousands of comments that can range from factual to hostile or even inflammatory. I read a blog post by a pastor in Holland, Michigan, who shared a story of one of his congregants, who was part of an extended family who traditionally met every Sunday to eat Sunday dinner together. And this family had decided to put a hiatus on their family dinner because their disagreements politically were so volatile. Another one of his parishioners told the pastor that within her neighborhood, neighbors with certain political yard signs were receiving anonymous letters from other neighbors. People are taking sides and won't talk to each other, she said. It's just not like our neighborhood to act this way. And this kind of hot, tense, bickering climate is the kind of, kind of like what was happening in Corinth. And so Paul, what Paul does to address this is he shares a poem about love. You may have heard this poem before, maybe at a wedding. I'm, I'm curious, how many of you have heard 1 Corinthians 13 at a wedding? Okay. Uh, it's nice to hear it at a wedding. It's nice to hear it read by a soft-spoken pastor or a friend from theater school. But really, this letter is, this poem is much more like a lifeguard saying, walk, when a kid is running at the pool. Love, Paul reminds them. And he continues, 
You can have the highest status, the best gifts, but it is worth nothing if you don't love. Paul says love is patient. Love is kind to suggest that perhaps the Corinthians don't actually know what love is like. They've never heard this poem read at a wedding. It's new to them. Some commentators suggest that maybe perhaps Paul is speaking about his own patient and kind dealings with this very frustrating church. Perhaps. But we also can't help but look at this and recognize a description of Jesus. But no matter who Paul is describing, this passage is a picture of emotionally mature love. This fall, in our sermon series, we've been focusing on emotionally healthy spirituality. We've learned the importance of understanding our history, our family history, so that we go back in order to go forward. We've learned how important it is to spend time in lament and grief and not simply gloss over the challenging parts of our lives. Last week, Pastor Paul reminded us the importance of the practice of rest and prayer and doing this on a regular basis. And this week's chapter, if you're following along in the book or the devotional, is called Becoming an Emotionally Healthy Adult. And it focuses on learning how to love well, learning skills to love well. One of these skills is the recognition of the sacred space between ourselves and other people. It involves not seeing other people as objects who can help us get what we want, but as people who are holy, that's H-O-L-Y, and holy other, that's W-H-O-L-L-Y, from us. Holy and holy other. Becoming an emotionally healthy adult also has to do with how we respond to conflict. That first, we respond and don't react. And that second, we respond and don't ignore. Paul's letter to the Corinthians is a great example of response amid conflict. And the way Paul describes love is something to aspire to. Love is patient and kind. It's humble. It's civil. It's selfless, calm, long-suffering, and full of endurance. It's hopeful. But this is the challenge for us. We cannot muster this love up within ourselves by ourselves. Being loving does not simply involve like doing it yourself, making yourself be loving, manufacturing love within our heart, kind of like what happens to the Grinch when his heart grows. We cannot do that by ourselves. Love comes from God. Paul doesn't unpack it here, but in other parts of the New Testament, we can learn more about love and where it comes from. We learn that God is love. God is love within the triune self of God. I love the word triune. If you've ever meditated on it, you might notice that it's two words that don't go together, really. Tri, three, un, one, three, one. God is three, one. And this is part of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, where we have one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in this unity 
of diversity. The father loves the son. The son loves the father. And that love pours out to us through the Holy Spirit. And God's love is so immense, more than anything we could ever imagine. It just pours out and pours out. My daughter came home from school this week and told me about something they'd read. She goes to Catholic school, and they're reading a book of questions children have asked Pope Francis. And the question was, what did God do before God made the earth? I love that question. And Pope Francis answered, God made time, and God loved. God loved long before God created the earth. God didn't make us because God needed someone to love. God already was love, and God already was loving because of the triune relational nature of our God. And it's only because of this love, this immense, enormous love, that we are able to love well. We can't try to love better and succeed. God's love is a gift. It's something that's surprising. It's something that's delightful. It is something that is really, really good news, especially on days we feel like there's not a lot of love inside of us, which honestly, I feel like that sometimes. I think we understand, though, um, the kind of benevolence, uh, the kind of picture of good news that this is because we've experienced a little of it this past week as people who live in Chicago. Um, This was a good news week for Cubs fans. It was really cool to be living in the Chicago area. I'm not from here. To see the Cubs play, to see people flying their W flags, to see the grocery stores selling roses that were red and blue. (laughs) Um, On Wednesday night, I was working on this sermon, but I was also checking the score on my phone to see how they were doing. I I don't watch sports or follow them, so that sets that in context. And I went to bed before the 10th inning was over, but when I was woken by the fireworks, I thought, this is good news. (laughs) And and this this kind of win, this kind of community experience kind of unifies us in a way. It unifies Cubs fans, of course, but even other fans are deeply happy for the experience the Cubs fans are having. We rejoice with them, no matter what we identify ourselves as. And this kind of sense of goodwill touches us. There's a sense that it increases the the number of times strangers talk to each other. Did you interact with more strangers because of the Cubs this week? Did you interact with maybe somebody you kind of avoid or don't like that much because of the Cubs, a coworker or a neighbor? Right? For once, we're unified by red and blue yard decor. This is something to celebrate. And this is just a team. It's just a team. It's not a person. It's not our triune God. It's not our triune God who pours out and out and out love upon us. But I wonder if the goodwill and celebration of this week is, a, is like a teeny tiny grocery store sample of God's kingdom. You go to the grocery store and get a little tiny sample of something. That is nothing next to a feast that you didn't have to prepare or plan. A feast with people that you love and people who you learn to love. A feast with people who have lived before you and people who live now in our present time with people across the world and people in our own neighborhoods. There's a feast like this, you know. It's centered on Christ. 
It's called in scripture, the wedding supper of the lamb. And every time we take communion together, we anticipate this feast. In this feast, no one is bickering or jockeying for position or status. But this is a feast where everyone truly loves and truly sees other individuals as people who are holy and wholly other. It is this hope that God gives us. And this is the reverse of our bickering. This is the flourishing that God intends for the church. And it's all because of God's great love for us. I invite you this week to live into the love God has for you so that it may fill you and pour out. This is going to be a hard week. This week, there will be bickering. But remember who and whose you are. You are God's beloved sons and daughters. You are the brothers and sisters of Christ the King who already reigns over the entire world. Most of us are Americans. Most of us will vote on Tuesday. But that is not where our ultimate hope lies. So vote, but do so with the same passion that you use when you stop at stop signs. It's part of being a good citizen. It is not where your hope lies. And in response to God's great love for us, may God empower us through the Spirit to be a community of emotionally healthy adults who love others well. It is through this representation of Christ that God will use us to be a witness for Christ and to bring the good news of God's love to the entire world. Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, unify us by your spirit. And we may serve as one highly functioning body. If we are unsure of our gifts and how we might serve the church and serve the world, guide us in that. May we affirm one another in the way you have gifted us individually to serve the whole body. May your love this week pour out from us, and may we remain in the hope you have for us. In the name of Jesus, amen.